shame says I don't deserve love and belonging, and yet it's also the deepest fear is I'm going to be found out, so I have to I have to work really hard. I have to scramble. I have to be perfect so that nobody realizes what shame says actually lives underneath. Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. Today we are dipping our toes into the very vast and deep topic of shame. One of the reasons is because Cheryl's fifth round of her course, Break Free from Anxiety, is starting up. It's a nine-month course, and as much as it is concerned with breaking free from anxiety, there's also a large component around breaking free from shame. So we thought it was a good time to talk about this topic, and you can also learn more about that course at Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. And also this topic came up in a recent episode. I believe it was the good girl and the inner teenager episode where we're talking about sexuality and the inner teenager and our real teenagers, teenage selves. And Cheryl, you were saying that you didn't really grow up with a lot of shame around sexuality in your family culture and the culture of LA, where you were growing up in a secular Jewish culture. And I said, oh, well, I was cloaked in shame. (laughs) And so afterwards, we talked about that phrase of being cloaked in shame. And we wanted to explore that more. What does it mean to be under that cloak of shame? What does it feel like? What circumstances throw the cloak over us? Cheryl, you shared a blog post recently about shame. And I would love to hear I would love to hear you read from that blog post because it really gets right at the heart of what we're talking about. Mm. This is a post from August 13th, 2023 called Healing Shame is one of the keys to healing anxiety. Years ago, I wrote a post called You Are Loved which I then recorded and included in several of my courses, and it's also on my website as a recording. The post begins, If you knew you were fully loved, if you knew that you were whole and worthy exactly as you are, just for being intrinsically you, your anxiety would disappear. That's a big if, and the barrier to feeling fully loved and knowing that you are whole good and worthy exactly as you are is quite simply shame. If you could quiet your shame, you could quiet your anxiety. And I'll edit what I wrote in 2013 and say that anxiety won't exactly disappear. That's not even the goal. But without shame in the way, when anxiety shows up, you'll have the self-love and the self-trust to address it which means tending to it like a scared child. So what is shame? 
shame is the voice that says, you are broken, you are unworthy, you are bad, you are not enough, you are too much, too sensitive, too emotional, you're a mistake, you're not allowed to make mistakes, you must be perfect, you are a failure, you are stupid, you are a loser. Shame is a barrier. Shame is a silencer. Shame is a liar. Shame is the dark, lonely dungeon that causes you to forget who you are, to forget that you are anything less than good and radiant, and that you have unique gifts and a purpose to share with this world. Shame is a protector. And as a young person, it gave you the illusion of control. By focusing on perfection, being perfect and doing things perfectly, you protected yourself from the pain of your circumstances in early life and the searingly soul-crushing awareness that the disconnection and ruptures in connection were not your fault. Shame is at the root of anxiety, intrusive thoughts, and OCD. And when we soften shame, we can then work more effectively with the symptoms of anxiety. Just hearing you read that list mm. of the voice of shame, it's so painful to hear it out loud. Yes. And yet I'm so familiar with that voice inside. It's a voice that we would never say to anybody else. Mm. It's the harshest, meanest voice that lives inside of us. And yet for a lot of people, it's the it's the running commentary that's kind of going sometimes all day long into the night, those ruminations of that self-hatred of that critic that just won't stop. Yes, I have a very strong inner critic. Mm. Um, and I've been I've been listening to a podcast recently called Shame Spiral. And the host, Ellie Kremendahl, is a therapist and a stand-up comedian mm. and writer. And she talks to people about – she always has a new guest on, oftentimes a comedian, mm. oftentimes other members of the LGBTQIA community. And they talk about shame stories. And sometimes she'll ask the guest if you could personify your shame if it was like a creature of some sort or a person or a character, what would it be? Mm. And the image that comes to mind for me of my shame right away is an opossum <laughs> because they are these kind of raccoon skunk type small to medium-sized mammals that have sharp little snouts and fangs and wormy tails 
and they are nocturnal and like very solitary Mm. creatures. So the only time I have seen one is like in the driveway at night getting into the garbage, right? Just like eating trash. (laughs) And if they're threatened, like really, really threatened, they will play Mm. dead. And it's not even a choice. It's like a physiological reaction, almost like fainting, where their body like goes Mm. rigid. They're not really conscious. They like smell like they really seem like they're dead. It's gross (laughs) and creepy. All of these things are gross and creepy. And that's why the opossum feels like a fitting creature to describe Mm. shame Mm. for me, my shame character. Because when I am in shame, like deep in shame, I just feel like I want to be in the dark. I want to Mm -hmm. isolate. I am a creature that is going to repulse people. Like if they saw me, if they really saw me in this moment, they would just scream and run Mm. away like you would if you were putting out your garbage and you and an opossum popped out of the garbage Mm. can. (laughs) And I was watching a lecture about shame by Harriet Lerner. And she said, fear makes you afraid of the dark. And shame makes you afraid of the light. Yes. Like that nocturnal little creature. Yes. Who scurries back into the cave. It's such a good summary. And such a good creature that showed up for you. It's absolutely shame. That's apt. Aptly carries the character of shame. What I like about the way that we're already starting to discuss it is as a character, as something that is somewhat separate from you, that is not, it doesn't feel like that at all when you're in deep in a shame spiral in the shame dungeon. It feels like it is you, but part of of the work with shame is to be able to have some distance from it, which we'll talk a little bit about later and hopefully in a follow-up episode. But to be able to see it as a creature, um, it reminds me also of the Feeding Your Demons work and book, which I don't know that we've ever talked about. I love I love this process mm. of Feeding Your Demons, which is exactly that. It's about making whatever the demon is um, into a creature and seeing it, giving it arms and legs and a voice and ultimately starting to feed it what it needs from your own body, like feeding it usually some form of love or compassion or kindness. And the brilliance of it is that it's it's very Jungian, it's very archetypal, it's taking what feels like is you and the fusion of it and being able to defuse so that you can see it as something separate, as something that actually needs your love. It also strikes me that the list that I wrote was from shame talking to you. You are broken. You are unworthy. You are a fail, which is how it sounds. But it also, when you're deep in the fusion, it is not that. It is, I am broken. I am unworthy. I am a fail. I am repulsive. I am repulsive. If anybody were to see me right now, they would be repulsed by me. And 
often when a feeling of repulsion comes up in somebody, like a client that I'm working with, they'll be talking about something and they'll have this feeling of feeling dirty, feeling icky, feeling repulsed. It's it's a shame response, right? It's a cl- it's a very strong clue that they're entering now into the territory of shame. A memory has come up from the past that has flooded them and the feeling is not oh that situation was icky or dirty or that person was icky and it's not just about sexuality, but it can be. Um but it can show up in so many different areas. But it's not externalized. It's I am repulsive. Right? Yes. Yes. It's actually quite a big step to be able, like you said, to see shame as a separate character or to hear its voice as a separate voice. Because I know for me, that's something that is very challenging that I am working on and I've made progress with. But I tend to be very fused with shame and the shame voice. And, you know, it's like everybody experiences shame at some point in life, but there are people who have a much higher shame proneness (laughs) trait and some people who have a lower shame proneness uh, trait or experience of shame. I was trying to think back to what is like my earliest memory of shame. Can I get back there? Can I remember? And something came up for me, a memory of being at the beach with my grandmother, my nanny, when I was three or four years old, so very young. And she wanted me to change out of my wet bathing suit on the beach and dry off and then get in the car. And she was holding up a towel so that I could like change behind the towel, but I was flipping out. I was like, no, absolutely not. I was horrified and so embarrassed at the thought of being naked on the beach. Even if she's holding up a towel, it wasn't enough. I was like, "Um, no, there are people around. This is a public beach. And I was only three or four. And that I really, it did feel like shame about my naked body at three or four. And that just struck me as so apt because as you and I were talking about, you know, right in the Judeo-Christian tradition, right at the beginning of the Bible, it's like God made the world and God made Adam and Eve. And then they ate from the tree of knowledge and they realized they were naked and they felt ashamed and they started to cover up. It's like right at the beginning of the story of humanity is humans messed up, made a terrible mistake, and then they started to experience shame. And specifically around the body, which like shame shows up everywhere, but certainly around our bodies, our body image, food, sexuality, Mm. like it really, really gets its claws Mm. in. So I just thought that was interesting that that was my first, that's really like the first memory that I could, that I could conjure now of experiencing that deep shame. It makes sense that it showed up. And that it was about your body and about being naked in public and in front of somebody else. Um, mm-hmm. And that it was so early, it was three or four, because I think shame shows up very, very early. We don't always have conscious memory of it. But 
I think especially for highly sensitive babies and toddlers, it doesn't take much to create a shame response from a parent. Disapproval, Mm -hmm. raising a voice, yelling, that that will be internalized as not I did something wrong, but I am wrong. Another Mm -hmm. kid might internalize it as, oops, I did something wrong. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, right? (laughs) But but this certain subset of humanity that is more prone to shame will internalize it as I am wrong, I am a mistake. So I think a lot of our shame is preverbal, which can make it hard to access. And that's where more of the somatic work comes in. We feel it in our bodies, even if we don't have specific memories or words, but we know it's there because of how it feels. So it sounds like those words that we've been sharing. And then there's the feeling of shame, which as you were describing is, is like a cloak, is like, I just have to go hide, right? It's very much a contracted, concave, make yourself as small as possible, Right? Afraid of the light, afraid of being seen, afraid of being known. I'm gonna I'm going to go scurry off into a corner like an opossum or an armadillo or something like very protected mm-hmm. and solitary and go eat some trash because <laughs> right now that's about all I think I deserve. And that solitary piece too, because because shame is relational, I do not believe that we are born with shame. It shows up in our relationships from how we are treated and in institutions, and we'll talk about that as well a little bit, but that the underlying belief is I am not worthy of love and belonging. I have to go hide and be solitary because I don't even deserve to be in the collective, in the tribe, in the group. Right. Yeah. And so it's this horrible bind because shame says I don't deserve love and belonging. And yet it's also the deepest fear is I'm going to be found out. So I have to I have to work really hard. I have to scramble. I have to be perfect so that nobody realizes what shame says actually lives underneath, which of course is not the underneath at all. Right? The underneath is is so good and so worthy and so light and um so much intelligence and so much creativity. That's how every single human being is born, I believe. And yet right above that is that cloak of shame. Hmm. It's amazing the layers of the ways that relationships impact and are impacted by shame. Mm. Like those early messages. Somewhere I got the message early on of it's not normal, it's not acceptable, it's taboo to be naked, 
right? So whatever messages we get about something is not normal, it's not acceptable, it's taboo, it's, it's going to create rejection. Yes. And then on the flip side, like you said, that we might in response to our own shame and the fear of being shamed by others or the way that our shame gets triggered in relationship can lead us to literally isolate or hide behind things like perfectionism that also impact our ability to genuinely connect with people and feel seen and known and loved. Yes. All of these barriers. Yeah. And I'm Mm -hmm. just struck by how another impact in relationships is something that you and I talked about in our pre-talk, which is that if we have this really fundamental shame place, then when we do make a mistake in relationship, when we do mess up somehow, if we do hurt someone, or even if someone hurts us, we feel like they've kind of messed up in our direction. It's really hard for us to know how to address that without just going directly into either trying to fix our appearance, like, uh uh-oh, my appearance Mm. has been marred. I need to just fix Mm. the appearance here. Mm -hmm. Or going into this kind of self-absorbed state of of obsessing over our flaws, our mistakes, our Mm. badness and brokenness, Mm. and retreating into that obsessive, self-denigrating place. Yes, which is a very hard place to get out of when you're when you're in it. Yeah, and and it gets in the way of actually looking at the situation a little bit more, maybe pragmatically, and thinking mm-hmm. either, oh, how do I want to make amends or or respond to this, or how do I want to seek some sort of repair or reconnection yes. with this person? Yes. Because shame is paralyzing. That's another one of its qualities. It's paralyzing. Yeah. It shuts down those channels. It shuts down um, the prefrontal cortex. It's such a, I think, a reptilian. No. The opossum playing dead. The opossum. That's what it is. <laughs> that's what it is. It's just, yeah. I'm dead. I have lost my capacity to reach, right? And to show. And what you were saying also about that's not normal, that's taboo, you're not normal around sexuality, but around anything, like I think it shows up very early around people around their emotions and their emotional life, highly sensitive kids who might cry a lot or might feel deeply, um, are deep thinkers. And the message so early is what's wrong with you, get over it, that's not normal, which is then translated as you're not normal. There's something wrong with your emotional life. It's too much. You are too much. Right. And I think that's why people are drawn to my work and my approach and the wisdom of anxiety is because even in the title itself is saying, no, there is, there is wisdom in your symptoms and there is wisdom in how you present in the world and your sensitivity is a gift. And yes, your anxiety is a gift. And could we even say your shame is a gift as horrible as it feels, but when we do turn toward it, embedded inside of it, underneath it, is the radiant 
gem of who you are. It's protecting your heart, right? It does show up as a protector, as mean as it sounds. It is actually on some level also trying to protect you, but it's so hard to get to those underneath places. It's so hard to get to the raw, pure emotions, the grief, whatever it is, whatever it is that comes in, the jealousy, the disappointment, because the shame layer is right there, right? It's what Andrea Gibson said about double suffering, right? There's there's the first suffering of just the human suffering of from the smaller ways that highly sensitive people feel, the sadness at the end of a season, right? Here we are, summer's ending. A lot of us are feeling into autumn coming, even if we love autumn, the sadness at the end of a day, or the much bigger emotional transitions that we go through. There's that very human element, but it so quickly gets shut down because shame comes in and says, what's wrong with you? Nobody else feels that way. Yes, that was also a source of early shame for me. When I was a kid, I had some kids around my age and a little older than me who bullied me really for being sensitive and mm-hmm. and anxious and they would make fun of me to try to make me cry and then make fun of me for crying and say, "Oh, get your umbrella." <laughs> oh. And I have carried that, not just from them, from other places too, this sense of what you said in the blog post, I think is kind of like I'm too much, Mm -hmm. you know, and my sensitivity and also anxiety and nervousness Mm -hmm. are, you know, the words that will come to mind is I just think in relationship to other people, other people are going to find me annoying. Mm. broken, concerning, Mm. and just that there's something very wrong with me and they won't want to be in relationship with me because Mm. of my sensitivity and anxiety. And then there's like the shame on top of the shame about it, you know? Yes. The shame for feeling ashamed because I see all these beautiful, sensitive people and people who struggle with anxiety. And I I'm, you know, I see them as so beautiful. And so, Mm -hmm. oh, I I shouldn't, I shouldn't carry shame about that stuff anymore, you know? Um, And I see how social media can kind of, like all the mental health stuff on social media and the internet can be really helpful, but also Mm -hmm. all of the opinions Mm -hmm. can kind of feed the shame too around like, you're not handling it right. You're, you shouldn't, you know, you're not, normal, you're not healed enough, you're you're not handling it right in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think there's just so many places where we can feel judged and shamed for whatever we're going through uh, with our mental and emotional well-being, school, doctor's offices, families, whatever. So we've mentioned a few of the places where shame can get transmitted, Um, religion, family life, through peers with bullying, 
I think it's important to name as many of them as we can because when we start to excavate shame, it's helpful to um, be able to pinpoint as best we can. It's not important that it be perfect, but we have some idea of where does this shame come from, right? So religion, bullying, siblings, um, sometimes that has to do with birth order, but not always. Intergenerational shame, so the shame that gets handed down in your family, even if it's not ever explicitly directed towards you, just the field that a child grows up in. If there's a parent who struggles a lot with shame and is kind of steeped in it, that will sometimes, not always, and this isn't to make parents feel guilty or worried if you're some a parent who struggles with shame, you know, we, we do the best we can with working with ourselves, but sometimes that shame will kind of cross the permeable boundaries of one of your children and they will absorb it even if it's not theirs. That's what I wrote about in this week's blog, blog post, the intergenerational pain and shame and um, the places that didn't start with you. Um, so then there's the bigger systemic shame. We mentioned education, educational systems. You and I were talking yesterday in our pre-talk about having a, a teacher that was a bully and shaming, shaming kids yeah. in front of the class, which you experienced, Victoria, by witness, by proxy. Um, but how devastating that is. It's such a horrific humiliation that I don't even have words that an adult could do that in, with other children, in front of other children. Um, poverty, if you grew up without a lot of money, that is quite often a source of shame. Racism, sexism, right? And these just bigger systems that we're all kind of swimming in and they quite often engender shame, right? I'm wrong. I'm not enough. I'm not okay as I am. I'm not accepted and loved and seen as worthy exactly as I am. It's the opposite message. Yeah. Ableism, fat phobia, homophobia. Mm. Mm. I remember someone talking about how often Disney villains are kind of coded as queer or coded as disabled, or they have some sort of visible disability. Mm. And I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, right? In our Disney movies, it's like right. the villains are, they are somehow, quote unquote, deviant. And deviant mm. is just like they have a disability or they're queer, mm. basically. Mm. Right. So then there's the whole media, right? Yeah. Just what it is to be a three-year-old watching a Disney movie, not only seeing what is the image of the villain, oh, that's what villain looks like. If I'm any of those things, does that mean that I'm bad too? But seeing the good guys and women and what they look like, and oh, if I'm not skinny and blonde, does what does that mean about my body? What does that mean about my worthiness? Because it's all equated yes. with, with good and bad, which is worthiness. Yeah. And like you said, with like dirty and clean, you know, I think about being in middle school and when I first started to get acne, 
just the shame of like oil, you know, having oily skin, having acne, mm. having pale skin. Like, in mm. it was very in and trendy to want to just have like a beautiful tan when I was in middle school, and here I am, this like pale, pimply, you know, <laughs> kid who's just like so ashamed of my body all the time. and body hair, you oh. know. Yes. All of it. I remember it. your sacred sexuality course when I took it years ago was one of the first times there was just one section where you were like, let's talk about pubic hair and mm-hmm. body hair mm-hmm. and shame around it, around this mm-hmm. like completely normal thing. Yes. <laughs> that everybody has. Yeah. And you're like, let's actually talk about it openly. I was like, it's wild, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. And it is wild. And some of this is about trying to stamp down what's what's wild, what's untamed, what's what's free. Right. Yeah. So then we're into the whole patriarchal systems yeah. and mindsets of not just sexuality, but creativity and intelligence and you know what happens when you're shamed in front of a group of kids at school for calling out an answer or for mm. laughing or for being out of bounds, right? Mm. For being untamed wild in any kind of way to use Glennon Doyle's term of untamed, yeah. right? To be just you, you're just being you. And then so often then that shame messages get internalized as either I'm not smart, which is the lesser version of I'm stupid, or I can't do school, I can't learn. Right, I'm just not meant for school, and that's a huge source of shame for people. But the piece about unclean, about being dirty, and like what you're saying when like you're adolescence, and well, that's a whole right. Which eventually we'll get to the middle school years of doing that as a topic. But what happens when your body just starts to change, and sometimes not the most pleasant ways, and it's just out of your control? But here's where I think there is this fascinating link between shame and OCD, which OCD is so much about trying to prove goodness and avoid badness. And one of the earliest symptoms for a lot of people, not everybody, is the hand washing and trying to get cleaner. And I'm not clean, I'm not clean, I'm not clean. And it gets taken literally in the mind of, I have germs or something's going to make me sick. But if we go into the metaphor of that place of I'm dirty. I'm because I am full of shame. I'm not good enough in some way. And here's some way that I can try to control it and I can try to fix it. Right. I'll 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 wash my hands over and over and over and over and over again. When underneath is the shame or I'll arrange the room and I'll make everything perfect because then I'll feel then I'll feel just right. The whole just right theme of anxiety was well underneath is is there something wrong with me? Right. Oh, I'm gonna have to, I, I can control the external. I can try to make everything just right. Right. And if you look at if you look at OCD theme by theme, to me, there's almost always an underneath place of of shame, of I, f- I feel dirty, which is shame. I am dirty. I am not right. Right. I think one of my earliest memories of shame, and I'm sure there are earlier ones because this was even eight or nine, 
maybe around nine. There were, for certain, there were earlier memories because I know that I shut down emotionally pretty early on, which might be hard to believe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I was actually kind of shut down. Um, And I would have absorbed that message in my family, even if it wasn't necessarily what was being said to me, but it was the dynamics that I was watching between, mostly between my dad and my older brother towards my younger brother. Um, He was quite emotionally made fun of. And I would, I would watch, right? I would watch and I'm certain, even though it's not a conscious memory, I'm certain I made the choice at some point of don't do what he's doing, right? Don't be that sensitive. He was highly sensitive kid, my, my middle brother. And we were very, very close. But I don't have memory of that, but I know that it happened. But my, one of my earlier memories, I was eight or nine and at gymnastics. And gymnastics was a huge part of my life from six to around 11. And I would go every day after school for hours. And there was a girl there who was the ringleader. And it was a group of four or five of us girls. And it's so funny who ends up becoming the ringleader. She was younger, she was smaller, but she was like the little dog, you know, who just. (laughs) (laughs) The yappy terrier. Yes. Terror. (laughs) And we would just all like hop to, you know, we would follow her, sometimes quite literally follow her. And she was mean. Um, and she would, she would say snarky comments and she would make fun. And the feeling was of, it was shame. It was, I am not right. Um, and that's a feeling that, that came up in different social situations that's probably the place where I have felt the most shame is with other girls, which again is really interesting because I've also had incredibly close female friends. And thank God it probably offset the trauma of that of that bullying. Um, where it ended up landing for me in gymnastics, and I don't know how it got there. Maybe she said something directly about my body, but it was about my legs. I was convinced that my legs were huge, that I had these huge thighs. I was tiny, right? I was a tiny girl. And when I look back on pictures of me at that time, like my heart just breaks. But I was absolutely convinced that my legs were huge. And she would make fun of other parts of my body too. Um, so again, interesting that actually both of us, some of our earliest shame memories is about the body. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting is the way that shame can interrupt our relationship. Yes. With our, with our body, with our emotions, with other Mm. people. Mm. And I think with our voice, Mm. we can start to swallow our voice. Yes. And I think that does kind of point towards some of the healing work around shame, mm. around reclaiming our voice and using our voice. But yes. I certainly feel like shame can just make you afraid to speak. 
yes. afraid to raise your hand in a class and speak or yes. present mm-hmm. something or even just be in a social situation and talk to people mm-hmm. or in your most intimate relationship, use your voice yes. to say what you're feeling, what you want and need, you know, what you're hoping for and afraid of. Mm. I think our voices can just have that cloak thrown right over them as well in the face of shame. It's so poignant, Victoria, how we shut down our voice because our voice is who we are. Our voice is our expression, right? Our voice is, like going back to that sexual sovereignty episode, our voice is our yeses and our noes, not just around our bodies and our sexualities, but about everything, right? Our voice is our self-trust. So this is part of the healing of shame, which we will talk about in more in depth in the next episode, is about reclaiming, reclaiming your voice. And part of how that happens, and I think there are many ways that healing shame happens, and it's not a quick fix by any means, because like we're saying, it goes back to sometimes our first moments on this earth. Um, but it's so, it's so deeply embedded. But part of what I love about my nine-month course is the Zoom calls and people being seen, being so vulnerable and brave to let themselves be seen, to share what's happening in their inner world, and to be met in what grows to be a very safe group but tends to be safe right at the outset by other people nodding, right? That nod of me too, and I get it, and you're not alone, and the comments that come up in the chat of I struggle with that too. And so sometimes, and this is a layer of healing with anxiety also, we're not even seeking to get rid of the shame, right? So much as how do we how do we meet it and the layers of it, the shame about the shame, the shame about the inner critic, the shame about all of the ways that our struggles show up. And that when we can name those layers and find compassion for them and even start to love them, that that is one of our greatest medicines. That's one of our greatest remedies. And that can happen in in therapy. That can happen when you're sitting across from somebody who is mirroring back, I accept all of you, right? And I love all of you, even though the word love is still taboo in therapy, but the feeling is, is, is that of being loved and accepted. Here I am sharing all of my demons and all of my struggles and all of my prickly armadillo possum places. And the therapist is, is holding and not going anywhere and mirroring back your goodness, right? And that it's in that mirroring back, because shame is relational, that I think so much of it is healed in relationships of various kinds, sometimes with a partner who just accepts you completely as you are, and sometimes in friendship and sometimes in therapy, and then sometimes in a group format. And I do think there's something particularly poignant and potent of being in a group because of these ways that we've talked about where shame gets triggered in a classroom situation or in a religious situation or in a in a group of peers who are bullying and you are 
being rejected and on the outside, that when you can be taken back into the group, into the fold, and have that sense of, I am accepted, right? And in the nine-month course, there's also the option of the smaller groups, which is four, five, six people. And those groups don't always gel, but when they do, it can be life-changing, right? It can just be magic to have those people that you're meeting with every couple of weeks, again, through the, the, the miracle of technology where you can actually see each other's faces and have that sense of we're all in this boat. We're all in this boat of being human and these varying levels of sensitivity and shame and anxiety that we're struggling with, but nobody is immune to the reality of being human, that shame will be there and anxiety will be there and intrusive thoughts will be there and OCD will be there. All of our coping mechanisms will be there. And what is it like to have them come out of their shame hole, their shame dungeon, just a little bit to say, here's my opossum. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. There's so much power in sharing the opossums of it all. And there's also so much power in, you know, I think I've heard that highly sensitive people are like 15% of the population or something, like a fairly small percentage. Like Mm -hmm. I often feel like I'm the only really highly sensitive person in any given friend group, right? And Mm -hmm. I love my friends and they love me, but there's something really special. Like when I've done one of your courses or when we have a, a Patreon meetup, about connecting with people where not only do we share similarities around certain struggles and challenges, but also certain values and gifts and interests. Like, yes. I mean, everyone is different. Every, like, it's not like we're all the same, but there often tends to be a general value of deep kindness and appreciation for beauty and gentleness, like those yes. types of things. Yes. And a real understanding and care for what it's like to have a mind that maybe ruminates a lot, but also is creative and yes. there's a lot of depth of thinking. So there's a lot of beauty. And also I think it, it also helps with the shame of not only bringing the shame out into the light, but actually really seeing like your gifts in other yes. people in a way that makes you appreciate them more instead of just being like, oh, well, I'm just different from everyone. And it's kind of annoying. Yes. (laughs) Or whatever. (laughs) Yes. It's a bad different, right? Yeah. It's just, oh, it's just, you know, difficult or Yes. It's just the burden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The burden of being highly sensitive and we forget because it's not seen and celebrated in early life. All of the gifts, the incredible gifts of having a very active mind. Yes. The mind that ruminates, but also the mind that thinks deeply about things and thinks about, yes, can worry about death, but also like how fascinating it is to talk about death when we can move past some of the fear about it, right? That these are, you are, you are all, we are all incredibly deep, creative, spiritual people. And that that is the other side. And that is the gift of learning to soften gently over time those shame voices, right? That 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 cloak that wants to take away 
and wants to tell you, no, it's not safe to, to be light, to see light, to be seen as light, to be seen as good and pure and holy and worthy and clean, like in the highest senses of those words, not in any kind of religious sense, but just the way that every human being, highly sensitive or not, that every human being underneath all of the layers is light. It's beautiful. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm very excited to continue talking about this in our next episode. I am too. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you to Jarrett Farkas for the use of our beautiful new theme music. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe or follow, leave us a review, share it with a friend, and consider joining our Patreon, where we share regular bonus content and also host virtual meetups. Our next meetup will be for the Autumn Equinox on September 24th. Visit patreon.com slash gathering gold to learn more. And visit conscious-transitions.com to read Cheryl's blog or learn about her courses. The next round of Break Free from Anxiety will begin September 9th, and you can register now.